So Nick, it's almost time for the brand new OBGYN intern challenge this year. That's right. We're starting on Monday, May 1st. So if you are a new intern for this July, whether you matched or didn't match to OBGYN, please sign up on our website, www.obgyninternchallenge.com. The new and exciting thing about this year's Intern Challenge is that we are partnering with Rosh Review, and they will be providing us with some questions from their QBank. But also, if you sign up, you will get a discount with Rosh Review later on as well. So much exciting content this year in the Intern Challenge, getting you ready for your July 1st start. Again, May 1st start on the challenge, so you need to sign up this week. Head over to www.obgyninternchallenge.com to make sure that you're ahead of the game. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Triox over coffee. coffee. Right. So today we're back uh, with part two of our lupus series. I think that we left everybody hanging on a cliff in the last one as we talked about all the complications, but then didn't talk about the management of lupus. Faye, why don't we just refresh ourselves on those learning objectives for this series before we dive into today? Sure. So last time we wanted to understand the definition and diagnostic criteria of lupus. We discussed the possible manifestations in different organ systems. We reviewed the adverse outcomes from lupus in pregnancy, both maternal and fetal. And this time around, we are going to learn how to begin to manage lupus in pregnancy. And remember, if you want to follow along, you can use the SMFM consult series number six, systemic lupus erythematosus in pregnancy. All right, so let's jump right into it, Nick. Let's first start to talk about what are some of the medications that we use to treat lupus. Yeah, so there's a lot um, is the bottom line. Um, But why don't I start off talking about probably the two that are most commonly encountered in obstetric practice. Um, So the first is hydroxychloroquine, and then the second are corticosteroids. So for hydroxychloroquine, um, the American College of Rheumatology basically conditionally recommends starting hydroxychloroquine in pregnant patients with lupus who are not already on it. And the reason for this is that HCQ, or again, um, Plaquenil being the brand name here, can decrease disease activity. It can decrease the amount of prednisone that is needed or used um, and has been shown to be associated with lessened adverse pregnancy outcomes. Um, SMFM actually goes a little bit further um, by saying that we recommend that all patients with lupus, other than those with quiescent disease, either continue or initiate hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy. Some investigators have even recommended that patients with quiescent disease who have SSA, SSB, or antiphospholipid antibody syndrome consider starting hydroxychloroquine um, specifically for these indications because some studies show improved maternal and fetal outcomes in those specific populations, for instance, reducing recurrence risk of that neonatal lupus syndrome. Now, moving on to the corticosteroids, um, these are recommended where lupus is not controlled simply on hydroxychloroquine alone. Um, Unfluorinated corticosteroids are largely inactivated by the placenta and so are preferred. And these are predominantly prednisone, prednisolone, and hydrocortisone. 
evolving and better evidence to suggest that corticosteroids are not associated with the fetal malformations that many of us have come to know to be associated with corticosteroids. Um, and so we should use them if they are indicated. Steroids can increase risk for gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, growth restriction, um, and then preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes as well as preterm birth. And so again, use it is indicated if it's indicated, um, but then also if it's not indicated, we prefer the hydroxychloroquine. Um, what other drugs might we encounter, Faye, or which ones should we consider avoiding? Sure. So you may also have heard of medications like azathioprine, which some patients are on for lupus, and this is okay to use, and it's not usually associated with fetal teratogenicity. Other medications include cyclosporin, which can be used for refractory lupus flares, and tacrolimus, which is a calcineurin inhibitor, can also be used and has been reported to be more effective than cyclosporin in treating those refractory lupus flares. Now, medications to avoid are things like prolonged use of NSAIDs. Um, this can lead to oligohydramnios. Um, it can also increase the risk of necrotizing enterocolitis, premature closure of the ductus arteriosus, and pulmonary hypertension. So certainly while sometimes NSAIDs can be indicated for a very short course in the first or even second trimester, we really don't recommend using a prolonged course of NSAIDs. Other medications that need to be discontinued before pregnancy use include methotrexate, which should be discontinued one to three months prior to pregnancy because of its teratogenicity. And if you recall from our other episodes discussing treatment of ectopic pregnancies, we know that methotrexate is actually used to stop pregnancy tissue growth in ectopic pregnancies. Another medication to stop before attempting pregnancy is mycophenolate, and this should be stopped six weeks before attempting pregnancy. And finally, the last medication that we should stop is a medication on leflunamide. Um, this is a medication that I feel like I have not really encountered in my young population, probably because our rheumatology colleagues are great and already considering that in our young female population that they may be considering pregnancy. But leflunamide is a teratogen, and pregnancy needs to be delayed two years after its use because of its long half-life and enterohepatic circulation. So certainly this is a medication that we need to think about not starting in our young female patients who are potentially considering pregnancy in the next couple of years. The next thing I wanted to ask about, Nick, is what about those biologics? I feel like these are being used more and more in our patients. And so, you know, are these safe in our patients? Can we use them in lupus? Yeah, you know, and this may harken back to a couple weeks ago when we talked with uh, Dr. Matting and Dr. Abel about inflammatory bowel disease. Um, they're getting more and more used and more and more common, particularly those TNF-alpha inhibitors. So remember, um, we talked about in the IBD episodes, sertilizumab, infliximab, adalimumab, um, galimumab, I think is a new one that we didn't talk about. But again, a lot of these biologics are becoming more used because they're pretty effective. Sertilizumab is kind of the one that can definitely be safely used throughout pregnancy, and so patients who are on that can consider continuing that. 
Um, the decision to initiate or continue biologics really needs to be a shared decision made in collaboration with rheumatology and individualized for each patient. Again, that kind of the theoretic effect that these TNF-alpha inhibitors, as Dr. Matting discussed with us in that IBD episode, is B-cell suppression in the baby when it's born. And so need to talk with your rheumatologists, talk with your patients, and then, of course, if the decision is made to continue, talk with the pediatricians um, so that way they're aware that baby's potentially been exposed to these agents. Um, but we're getting newer and better data to suggest that they may actually be safe to continue using. And so it opens up a whole new path of treatment for our patients affected by autoimmune disease. All right. So as we move forward, Faye, um, now, you have a patient with lupus coming to you for the new pregnancy visit or for a new consult. Um, what are some of these antenatal considerations or the pieces that you're like, I need to know this about your history or this I need to check off to make sure I'm taking the best care of you? Yeah, so one of the first things to think about is if someone has antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And so if someone has met that clinical and laboratory criteria for APLS, the goal really is to improve maternal, fetal, and neonatal outcomes. And so for those specifically who have not had a previous thrombotic event, we would recommend prophylactic anticoagulation during pregnancy as well as for six weeks postpartum. And then even more important for those with a history of thrombotic events, these patients actually need to be on therapy therapeutic anticoagulation throughout pregnancy and for six weeks postpartum. The other thing that we need to think about are patients with antiphospholipid antibodies, but they don't actually meet criteria for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. So patients with these antibodies, especially lupus anticoagulants who don't meet these clinical criteria, are still at risk of other adverse pregnancy outcomes, um, but unfortunately, the optimal management for them remains unclear. There have been meta-analyses of those with asymptomatic antiphospholipid antibodies with or without lupus, and in these studies, there was no difference in adverse pregnancy outcomes in those who had prophylactic treatment um, and those who didn't. Uh, but because of the risks that they have still of developing things like fetal growth restriction and as well as preeclampsia, SMFM actually recommends treatment with low-dose aspirin alone, meaning no prophylactic anticoagulation. All right, so I think the next group of people that we should also talk about is, you know, what about those patients with SSA and SSB antibodies? Yeah, I think this is another one um, that certainly is of high and concerning risk, right? We talked about that neonatal lupus syndrome, and that risk of neonatal lupus syndrome with or without lupus is present in those who have these antibodies. And so the recommendation is to do something about that. Um, treatment with hydroxychloroquine throughout pregnancy has been proposed to decrease the occurrence of congenital heart block and at-risk fetuses. Um, but data is still lacking due to inadequately powered clinical trials for the primary prevention of, of heart block. Another method that's been proposed is to screen for first and second degree heart block with serial echocardiograms and then to use steroids to try and prevent the onset of third degree heart block. Um, so basically sending these patients for serial echoes um, to evaluate kind of the, the PR interval on fetal echocardiogram. Um, and I know we're getting a little bit into the weeds here with this, but you're trying to prevent ultimately the development of third degree heart block. And the theory is to use steroids for that. 
In the PR interval and dexamethasone evaluation or the PRIDE study, they did show that treatment with dexamethasone in some women did reverse first-degree heart block, um, but some of the first-degree heart block resolved on its own, and then several cases of complete heart block occurred without some sort of graded progression through the first and second-degree heart block. Um, so really kind of we're, we're not entirely sure the promise of, of steroids here. There's some retrospective data that looks at this as well, but the overall utility of screening or treating for early heart block really remains unproven. Um, I think that the kind of current studies that we're waiting for results on or are publishing results soon include the stop block trial um, to be able to evaluate this. Ultimately, from SMFM, the current recommendation are that steroids should not be used routinely for the treatment of fetal heart block um, due to anti-SSA or SSB, given unproven benefits and known risks of steroids, and serial fetal echocardiogram for assessment of the PR interval should not be routinely performed outside of clinical trial settings. Doppler assessment of fetal heart rate during routine prenatal visits, of course, can still be used to screen for complete heart block. Um, if you're hearing something that sounds like an arrhythmia or bradycardia, then of course you would be sending those patients off. And then just finally as a reminder for Plaquenil, it can be used for the prevention of recurrence, but not for the primary treatment or prevention of heart block. All right, and then Faye, let's kind of come down to the last bits um, that are not as pregnancy specific, but important to know about how to treat in pregnancy, um, the lupus flares. Sure. So for a patient with a mild lupus flare, you know, first we need to diagnose them. And the way that we do that is with both clinical and lab evaluation. So this will include a history, a physical exam, and the lab work that you want to obtain will be things like a complete blood count, anti-double-stranded DNA, as well as complement levels. And complement levels will usually be low, while anti-double-stranded DNA will usually be high in a lupus flare. In these patients, you can actually start them on outpatient 200 milligrams twice a day of hydroxychloroquine if they're not already on it. And if they're already on it, you can actually increase them to 400 milligrams twice a day. And if they're not responding, then you can actually start them on a low dose of steroids, like 15 to 20 milligrams of prednisone a day. And certainly if you're unsure, you can have your rheumatology colleagues weigh in as well. In someone with a severe lupus flare, these are patients that potentially may need to be hospitalized. You still have the same clinical and laboratory evaluation, um, but the other thing to also remember to look out for are things like preeclampsia. These patients are going to need more treatment, and this can involve starting steroids with a dose of 1 to 1.5 mg per kg and then tapering per improvement. And then of course, these are patients that you definitely want to speak with your rheumatology colleagues about in order to figure out the best way to treat their severe lupus flare. All right. So let's say, Nick, you know, you probably see a lot of these patients already in your clinic, but let's say you have somebody who has lupus and they're coming to you and they say, hey, I want to try and get pregnant. What would you tell them? Should they get pre-pregnancy counseling? Yeah, so why don't I take us through sort of the the time of delivery? So I'll start with pre-pregnancy counseling. Um, pre-pregnancy counseling is, of course, encouraged. As we've mentioned on the show before, one of the things that I think a lot of MFM folks wish, and particularly patients with severe disease, is that they did come and talk with MFM before getting pregnant um, to discuss risks and disease optimization. Um, and 
in particular risks with lupus for both mom and the fetus. In those with very severe maternal risk as a result of lupus disease, pregnancy should be discouraged. And those are, again, those with particularly active disease, um, so active nephritis, severe pulmonary, cardiac, renal, or neurologic disease, a recent stroke, or presence of pulmonary hypertension. Um, these patients should be encouraged to get their disease under better control before continuing pregnancy. Again, given the facts that disease activity tends to pretend worsened outcomes in pregnancy if it's a high amount of disease activity. Now, testing or not testing during pregnancy, um, we definitely recommend antenatal testing and serial growth scans in patients with lupus. Um, and this is because of those risks of growth restriction and stillbirth. Now, there's no evidence that supports an optimal approach to this. Um, but I think probably in practice, and according to the SMFM document, you can consider starting interval growth ultrasounds at about 28 weeks and assessing every four weeks through delivery. And then fetal surveillance or non-stress tests starting at around 32 weeks can be considered. Now, finally, with delivery, um, timing, mode, and management of delivery really should be individualized to the patient, um, and most of the time focused around the obstetric factors as opposed to any lupus-specific factor. Um, if it's an uncomplicated pregnancy, otherwise, um, you can deliver at term, no going for that 39-week-plus delivery. If there are other complications, um, you're going to manage per the complication, basically. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, just anecdotally, I think, with patients with lupus, we're thinking about particularly those hypertensive disorders or those renal manifestations that might be making us think about preeclampsia. Um, or we're thinking about growth restriction, and that may push us into the early term or late preterm time period. Stress dose steroids um, should also be considered in those who have prolonged use of steroids at baseline. So again, if you're bringing them in for delivery, particularly for cesarean delivery, and they've been on a high dose of prednisone throughout, um, you're going to need to use stress dose steroids at the time of cesarean. All right, now that we've gone through delivery phase, let's talk about the immediate after delivery, because we know the postpartum care and the transition back to primary care is so important. Absolutely. So in the postpartum time period, this is when we need to think about relapse or flare um, because this can increase in someone who has lupus as with patients with other autoimmune diseases. So it's possible to discuss with the rheumatologist's prior regarding treatment postpartum. Some patients who may have had other children who know that they have a postpartum flare may require some type of prophylactic treatment, but not all patients are going to need that prophylactic treatment. Other things that we can now use in the postpartum period are NSAIDs, so this can also be used if the patient is having things like joint pain. And remember that the medications that we commonly use for treatment can be used during breastfeeding. So for example, NSAIDs, hydroxychloroquine, corticosteroids, these are all considered compatible with breastfeeding by the American Academy of Pediatricians. One other thing to consider in these patients is contraception. So in these patients, you know, 
LARCs or long-acting reversible contraceptives such as IUDs with or without levonorgestrel and etonorgestrel implants are really good options, especially for patients with lupus who don't want to become pregnant for a few years or don't ever want to become pregnant again. There is some concern regarding estrogen-containing oral contraceptives. There is a theoretical risk for lupus flares when we're using these medications, but they can still be used in patients with lupus. However, patients with a history of active and severe lupus, remember, were excluded from randomized trials um, that proved estrogen safety in these patients with lupus. And also, estrogen is contraindicated in those with previous thrombosis or those with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, as it could potentially increase their risk of stroke or other types of DVTs. Progesterone-only contraception is also safe. So for example, progesterone-only pills, as well as Depro-Provera. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our content for lupus in pregnancy and how to manage it. So why don't we go ahead and summarize? Yeah, so we started off talking about medications specifically. Um, Recall that hydroxychloroquine, HCQ, or brand name Plaquenil, is conditionally recommended by the American College of Rheumatology in patients with lupus who are not already on it due to its ability to decrease disease activity, decrease prednisone use, and potentially reduce adverse pregnancy outcomes. SMFM echoes that recommendation and actually states that all patients with lupus, other than those with absolutely quiescent disease, continue or initiate HCQ in pregnancy. Some investigators are recommending that patients with quiescent disease who have SSA, SSB, or antiphospholipid antibody syndrome should start hydroxychloroquine as well because some studies suggest improved maternal fetal outcomes in those specific populations. Corticosteroids are the next most common treatment. Um, Unfluorinated corticosteroids, most commonly prednisone, are the ones that are used because they're inactivated by the placenta. These are likely safe, but again, can increase risk of gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, preterm birth, and so um, should be used with caution, but used if necessary. Other immunosuppressive agents such as azathioprine, cyclosporin, tacrolimus, and the biologics are also likely very safe to use, though the biologics that data is developing every day. Remember in pregnancy to avoid NSAIDs for prolonged use, methotrexate for at least one to three months prior to pregnancy, mycophenolate for at least six weeks before attempting pregnancy, and then leflunamide at least two years before attempting pregnancy um, because of its long half-life and enterohepatic circulation. In terms of antenatal considerations, we need to think about whether patients have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Specifically for these patients, if they've had a previous thrombotic event, we need to recommend therapeutic anticoagulation throughout pregnancy and for six weeks postpartum. And if they haven't had a previous history of a thrombotic event, then they need to be on prophylactic anticoagulation for that same time period. For those patients specifically who have antiphospholipid antibodies but don't meet clinical criteria for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, SMFM still recommends treatment with low-dose aspirin alone with no anticoagulation otherwise. Patients with SSA and SSB antibodies are at an increased risk of having neonatal lupus syndrome. And so specifically for these patients, there has been some proposal to start 
hydroxychloroquine throughout pregnancy to try and decrease that risk of congenital heart block. However, in terms of ways to prevent heart block by doing echocardiograms and other methods, these have not yet specifically been proven. So the current recommendation is not to use steroids routinely for treatment of fetal heart block due to anti-SSA or SSB antibodies, given that they have unproven benefits. In terms of flares for lupus, again, use your rheumatology colleagues, but you're using a combination typically of hydroxychloroquine and or steroids to be able to help um, push those flares down. You're going to talk about that with sort of other recommendations with pregnancy, including pre-pregnancy counseling. All of these patients should have counseling to review many of these risks that we've talked about today. And in those with particularly severe disease, pregnancy should potentially be discouraged. Um, with patients who are pregnant with lupus, antenatal testing is recommended. Serial growth scans starting at about 28 weeks and reassessed every four weeks, and NSTs around every 32 weeks are one recommended approach, though there's no evidence to support the optimal approach. Timing of delivery, mode, and management should be individualized to the obstetric conditions that are ongoing. Um, and remember to use stress dose steroids in those with a prolonged use of steroids. Postpartum, we need to watch out for flares in these patients, and sometimes we need to come up with a plan with regards to how to avoid these flares with the patient's rheumatologists. Remember those medications that can be used in the postpartum period, like NSAIDs, hydroxychloroquine, and corticosteroids, are all considered compatible with breastfeeding. Contraception should also be discussed with these patients, specifically for patients who do not want to become pregnant for many years. Larks with an IUD or an etonogestral implant are all very good options for patients with lupus. While estrogen-containing oral contraceptives can be used in those with lupus, it should be avoided with those with active and severe disease or with those who have history of thrombosis or those with APLS. All right, Nick. So I think this is the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is. Give us a five-star rating and review. Us on social media, on Twitter, at Kriogsoverkauf1, on Facebook and Instagram, at Coffee. And if you want to donate to the show, you can go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee. If you want to find show notes for this episode, which we definitely recommend reviewing, um, or answer that Rosh review question of the week, head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. If you have questions for us, have suggestions or a correction for the show, or just want to come say hi, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that? Yeah, you know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten and probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries. 
Yeah, as I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas, so not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening, if you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics. This is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med Project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG Project and OBG First, as well as that resident core curriculum, absolutely free, heading to our website at www.creagsovercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up.